Well, welcome to a Super Tuesday edition of The Bottom Line, another Super Tuesday, the final one of the month of April. We are getting closer and closer to election time. And I encourage you, if you've not registered to vote yet, please do so. Uh, check out myfaithvotes.org, ivoterguide.com, um, electionforum.org, Craig Huey's group. Those are three of the best in terms of knowing what's happening election-wise, uh, election wherever you are. Uh, you can register through your regular registrar of voters. Of course, for those of us who live in the People's Republic of California, we know all about how easy it is to get registered because of the motor voter laws. One way you can take action, and we've had this conversation on many different fronts, but I, I want to stress this again, and I'll stress it again and again. One of the easiest ways that you and I can help uh, make sure elections are fair, and, and again, you'll notice I'm not saying, let's make sure all the Republicans win. Let's make sure all the Christians win. I mean, obviously, we like men and women of character to uh, take office, and there are people in the uh in the congressional ranks and in the united states senate and city councils and whatever who are in both political parties of the majors that uh, profess faith in christ and we're grateful that they do ultimately um it does appear to me that people who uh, follow the donkey more than the elephant have a tendency to be less biblical in their mindset in terms of i, I honestly don't understand how a bible-believing christian could be a registered democrat but I'm willing to talk to people who are because chances are it might be for one or two issues. And, uh, you know, at the same time, though, I look at the GOP and how feckless they have become. Um, that, that's why I'm a no party preference guy. I'm, you know, that 24% of the people who live in the People's Republic of California do not have a party preference. So don't think for a minute that California is all blue all the time. Um, it, it's, th those lines of demarcation are pretty flimsy at best. But one thing that we can do, and I hear this from Jason Yates at MyFaithVotes.org all the time. As Christians, I believe when Jesus, you know, offered that, you know, someone said, is it lawful to pay a tax to Caesar? And he said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to God the things that are God's. And then to pull out his tax, you know, so he, he didn't have any income, ironically. <laughs> but and pull out that fish, take the coin, you know, here's your tax. But I really do believe in stewarding our vote. I know that there are a lot of people who would say, well, I haven't kept up on the candidates or I don't want my, you know, I, I don't want to tarnish my reputation by voting for someone. Look, here's the deal. You're going to vote for imperfect people and they're going to do imperfect things. Not every piece of legislation, not every ballot initiative is right. There's been so much written over the years about, you know, the, the fall of the evangelical church because of their blind allegiance to Donald Trump. Let me make it a little easier, simpler, I should say, to, to understand, I think, where Christians should be. First and foremost, I don't think any political candidate, especially not now, is a savior for anybody. Uh, we are not going to see a Christian rise up among the ranks and run for office and eventually get to the White House that every Christian is going to say, thank the Lord for giving us this good godly leaders. It's an insult to every Christian who is suffering under a dictatorial communist regime and suffering for their faith to say that the only way we know God loves us is if he gives us a Christian president. So let, let's, let's do what we can to show that we have a certain level of maturity in the faith and stop saying things like that, okay? Secondly, I, I was talking with a faith leader who is a prominent Bible teacher. He's on radio and television. He's on all of our bottom line show affiliates and great man of God. 
um, Egyptian heritage, did his schooling in Australia and in California, now ministers in Georgia. I will not mention his name, but if you can't figure out who that is by now, well, then do a little digging. Anyway, uh, he and I were talking shortly before the election of 2016, and he knows people who work in the White House. He knows people who worked for the 45th president of the United States. And I asked him, what do you think? Is this a Cyrus moment? Is this a God moment? Cyrus being a reference to the Old Testament king who was not a godly man, but God used him to accomplish his will. And he said, yeah, I think this could be a Cyrus moment, but he said, you know, if the election goes for Donald Trump, this was in 2016, I believe that means God's giving us four more years to kind of get our act together before the real persecution and tribulation starts. And if Hillary Clinton wins, it'll just start right away. And here we are now in 2013, getting ready for the 2024 elections. And I think he was right. I think his words were prophetic. And uh, he's a very trustworthy man, has been a guest on the Bottom Line show many times. But I'm glad that he said what he said to me and that we had a chance to share that here on the program because the reality is, you know, here on this Super Tuesday, there are a lot of Christians who voted for a guy like Donald Trump thinking that this is basically kind of the way that the Jews looked at, you know, Jesus saying, we want a Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome. I don't think that that was God's purpose for, you know, watching the election of Donald Trump and saying, okay, this is who you get. I mean, ultimately, I believe that God is okay with all the election results, even the crooked ones. And not that he's okay with crookedness, but basically he's saying, America, this is what you need. And not just America, but church in America, this is what you need. For anybody who got soft and squishy in their faith under George W. Bush, you sharpened your faith dramatically under Barack Obama. For anybody who got a little too big-headed and a little too America first, under Donald Trump, we're watching communism, if not socialism, be ushered in under Joe Biden. But again, I urge you to think of the missionaries, the pastors who are being imprisoned. I think of Andrew Brunson, who's become kind of a spiritual mentor to me, the American pastor who was locked up in Iran for how long? Who said he went through a period of almost two years where he said it felt like God did not hear my prayer. And yet I worshiped him anyway. He said, I sang, I danced before the Lord. He said, it was bad enough I was in solitary confinement. But if you ever saw Andrew Brunson dance, it is not pretty, at least to the human eye. But in God's economy, it was beautiful. And he came back and what was the first thing he said once God brought him back to the United States? He said, guys, buckle up because there is a coming persecution for the church in America like you have never seen before, like you've never thought could happen here. And oftentimes we in the body of Christ get so hung up on, well, if we could just elect the right governor, if we can, hey, the Supreme Court justices, blah, blah. That's a part of it. Don't get me wrong. That is a part of it. But it can't be our sole focus. It can't be. You've got a conservative party in the United States that is pretty bitterly divided right now. There is, there are no shortages of candidates who I think would make good presidents and vice presidents. The question is, is that party going to divide itself to the point where the other party just hangs back, you know, lets the other party implode and they just walk right in and win again. But how many Christians are going to sit on their hands this coming November or November of 2024 and say, I can't vote for these people because I don't approve of the candidates. I don't do this. I don't do that. If you're on a road trip and you are going from point A to point B and you're hungry and you need gas for your car or you need to charge up, 
you stop and you pull over to some kind of trucky stop area and there are five different restaurants that are all what we would call greasy spoons you know they're just diners that don't have healthy options fast food places with tons of sodium and lots of carbonation in the beverages and so what do you do there are many christians who say you know what i'd rather starve than eat this food and they keep on going until they run out of gas or until they're really, really hungry and they can't concentrate on the road. And sometimes you got to suck it up and have the Big Mac combo and keep going. I'm not saying make a steady diet out of it, but when it comes to elections nowadays in this culture, pretty much your choices are fast food combos. So pick the one that's going to taste the, be- the best and not hurt you the most and you're going to be fine. But please, I implore you to register to vote if you're not already registered and vote in the primaries in 2024 early on and then also in the uh, general election because your vote does matter it absolutely does matter case in point you know we if you haven't been paying attention and that's okay because there's a lot that takes our attention away but something i noticed this is back in say 2014 2012 13 14 when President Obama was running for a second term and remember during the campaign in 2008, there was a question about gay marriage, quote unquote, because California had Prop 8 on the ballot and Californians actually voted to enshrine marriage in the state constitution as between a man and a woman. And the attorney general said, I'm not gonna defend any challenge to this. And a judge said, nope. And next thing you know, six years later, the Obergefell decision happens. And now same-sex, quote-unquote, marriage is happening in all 50 states plus the District of Columbia. And then the activist said, well, you got nothing to worry about now because it couldn't, you know, nothing else is going to happen. And here comes all the transgender stuff. Well, the transgender stuff didn't just show up in the last four years. It's been a concentrated effort by activists and influencers, but also politicians as well. And they use a rather insidious tool to force schools to comply. Wonder what that tool is? I'll give you a hint. We were just talking about food. Yeah. How are school lunch programs being used to indoctrinate children with transgender ideology? It's subtle, but it's real. And now it's hitting Christian schools too. We'll talk about it coming up next as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to this Super Tuesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and we're taking a look at how transgender ideology has been kind of leaked, if you will, into the public school system. And it's also starting to find its way into the Christian school system as well. And you're wondering, well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about school lunch programs and the federal government. Back in 2012, 2013 or so, there was a ballot initiative on the ballot in North Carolina. I believe it was called Proposition 1 or Initiative 1, something like that, that basically made it a state crime in North Carolina to for a man to enter a woman's bathroom in a public place. And when we talk about public, we're not just talking about not in your home. We're talking about a civic auditorium, you know, a courthouse, uh, someplace that was owned by the state or city or county. Well, it was interesting because there was a big uproar and the White House made a big deal. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You know, transgender kids, blah, blah, blah. And then all the artists, we're not going to play in North Carolina and the NCAA. We're not going to travel here. And so, What people didn't realize was that the bill that was being proposed was also, it was kind of a rewording, if you will, of existing state law. 
Bruce Springsteen. I'm never playing North Carolina again. Well, Bruce, you've been playing North Carolina for 25, 30 years, and every time you went in there, that was already the law. They just kind of enhanced it and beefed it up a little bit. Sorry. Well, you know where all that came from? I mean, if you, what, 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 this kind of just came out of nowhere. It didn't. There were federal guidelines for the distribution of school lunch monies in school districts all across the country, like $4 billion worth of school lunch money. And they came not with changes in the law, not with mandates, but with quote-unquote guidelines. Yeah, the White House became Pirates of the Caribbean, right? That's a reference to the movie. Uh, Guidelines for how to properly accommodate transgender students in the United States, letting them use the restroom that they choose, letting them shower in the locker room that they choose, letting them participate in athletics and extracurriculars based on the gender that they choose. Now, the science has settled people. We're thrilled with this. Back when Johns Hopkins opened up their transgender studies department in their medical center, Remember how long it used to take someone who said, I think I'm suffering from gender dysphoria. I'm a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. They had to go through five years of extensive psychotherapy, all sorts of counseling. And these were adults we're talking about, right? Now you had the Obama administration saying, hey, if a kid comes to you as a boy and says, I'm a girl, you have to let him shower with the girls in their locker room. You have to let him use the girls' bathroom. Well, why, public school administrators asked. I mean, we had no idea this was a problem here. Well, it's not that they didn't have any idea. It's just that every school at that point had been left to deal with it on their own. If a student came to administrators and said, hey, look, I'm a guy, but I really feel like I'm a girl, and I want to identify as a girl here on campus, the parents would meet with the principal and the student. They'd sit down. They'd work out a way. I, I don't know that there were too many boys who were you know feeling like they were girls and dressing like they were girls in schools. We don't know, and the reason we don't know is because no one was tracking the number. No one. You won't find records of how many... The transgender lobby will tell you, we've got mountains and mountains of evidence and all this history, and it should be in textbooks and whatever. But if you went to public school districts and asked them how many gay students they had, how many transgender students they had, heck, no one even bothered to count the number of quote-unquote gay people in the culture until the 2010 census. And then what a big surprise it was. We had heard it was 5%, it was 6%, it was 10%. It was 20% of the population are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. That's what we were told. And then they did the census. And guess what happened when the census numbers came out? Take a guess. Less than 3% of the population identified in all of those groups and half of those people identified as bisexual. Well, that really set the the transgender and LGBTQ lobby back. As a matter of fact, in 2020, when it came up, people were saying, oh, Donald Trump didn't want that in the census. But the reality was, I think the gay lobby didn't want it either because they didn't really have a way of counting. Well, guess what happened? Here comes the Obama administration, 2012, 13, 14, saying, if you want your school lunch money, you have to accommodate these students based entirely on what the student tells you, not what the science tells you. What the parents tell you, well, not what the students is more important than the parents, not what the medicine is telling you, 
not what real testing is doing it. Instead, the school program said, well, we're, we don't want to lose our money. If you don't follow those guys, why would you tie transgender bathroom use into school lunch programs? I mean, whose idea was that? It was bad enough in public schools, even in a place like California. At the time these guidelines were first handed out, California boasted a student body population. Atten- enrollment was around 6.2 million students in public schools out of a population of nearly 40 million people. There are 58 counties in California. Do you know how many school districts actually measured whether or not they had gay students or bisexual students or transgender students or whatever in their midst? Do you know how many? One. One school district in the state of California actually asked families if they had any gay LGBTQ students. San Francisco Unified. So how can you hold billions of school lunch money dollars hostage on the public side as the Obama administration did with their quote-unquote guidelines when you don't know how many transgender students there are? The superintendent of public instruction in California at the time spoke out and said, look, we leave that to every individual school, let alone district. If a principal has a situation with a student who identifies that way, then basically it's the teacher's lounge. All the teachers are informed. There's a meeting with the parents. They say, hey, look, we have a student here who identifies transgender. And so, and the idea was to not make a big deal out of it so as not to disrupt the entire student body. If you have 1,500 students at your school, 2,000 students at your school, and one of them is transgender, the whole idea was just kind of let them blend in. But then, money was at stake. And then, it started to reach other areas. And then, it wasn't just about public schools anymore. Well, public school attendance in California and other states is down, thanks to COVID and a variety of other reasons. Not that kids got hurt with COVID, but they just got tired of being stuck at home. California enrollment is down nearly 10% in public schools since the pandemic. And every student comes with a price tag. But now there's a Christian school that's actually facing a challenge to a school lunch program that is funded by the federal government and helps children from low-income families and underprivileged neighborhoods get lunch at school when they might not be getting any other meals during the course of the day. But the Biden administration now has decided to take aim at Christian schools that won't play by the same transgender rules as well. On the other side of this break, Alliance Defending Freedom has filed a lawsuit on behalf of Grant Park Christian Academy in Florida. We'll tell you why they're in the Biden hair crosshairs in just a moment as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years? 
After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Super Tuesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. You may not like the candidates for president in 2024, but if one of the names on the ticket is Joe Biden, you have to vote against him. And here's the reason why. Grant Park Christian Academy in Florida is a Christian school that also works with the local community to provide children from low-income families and underprivileged neighborhoods with a school lunch program. They get free lunch and they get a scholarship to go to the school. There are federal programs in place that ensure that these kids can get breakfast or lunch or snack at school, no matter what school they attend. Grant Park is the school that does the feeding. But now... That federal assistance is in jeopardy because when the Biden administration redefined Title IX, all of a sudden the kids who got their lunches there were no longer able to get their lunches there. The case is called Grant Park Christian Academy versus Freed. When they first applied for the Grant National School Lunch Program in 2017, uh, they got it and they got USDA funding for school meals. That's a huge deal because Grant Park is a private school. When schools participate in the school lunch program, they are subject to Title IX, which means their programs and activities cannot discriminate against people on the basis of sex. Now, Title IX, as you know, was passed in the 1970s. Richard Nixon signed it into law. It basically was designed to make sure that women, girls, had equal opportunity access to the things the boys did, sports, extracurriculars, et cetera, et cetera. Grant Park Christian Academy treats every student with dignity and respect, of course, but the school can't abandon their biblical principles. The school's position, God created male and female, that's it. They contacted the office of Nikki Freed, who's Florida's Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services, the one responsible for administering the National School Lunch Program on the state level, and said, here's the deal. We're part of the program, but this is what we believe. She, she, her office responded by saying participating schools must comply with all federal program regulations, and if not, you have to leave the program. So in other words, Grant Park Christian Academy had to basically recognize transgenderism, uh, accommodate transgenderism, you know, the deal. Uh, May 22 is when the USDA issued the policy update redefining sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity. In July 20 of 22, Grant Park Christian Academy was notified by a Florida official they have to comply. In August of 2022, days after Alliance Defending Freedom attorneys filed their lawsuit, Commissioner Freed and the Biden administration granted the school's religious exemption and approved their application for funding. But if it weren't for taking that stringent attack, they always have this hanging over their head. If the administration comes back after them, they've already got a black mark. And how many more Christian schools who are working with these federally funded programs to provide school lunches, breakfasts, and snacks for local kids in underprivileged neighborhoods 
This is a Christian school reaching out and saying, we want to play by the rules, but we believe. So they got an exemption for now to Title IX, but they've got Alliance Defending Freedom working on their case around the clock to make sure that they don't lose it. Your tax-deductible donation to Alliance Defending Freedom makes it possible for students like those at Grant Park Christian Academy and the neighborhood to actually get the help that they need, uh, to get the legal support that they need. You know, I would love to see our Bottom Line Show listeners step up and create some $50 warriors, monthly warriors for Alliance Defending Freedom. We could use 40 of you right now to make a donation. Uh, just go to uh, CrawfordMediaGroup.net and make your best donation there. It's completely tax deductible. CrawfordMediaGroup.net. And we know that for such a time as this, that help will really benefit people like the Grant Park Christian Academy in Florida. It might be coming for your son or daughter or grandson's or grandson, uh, granddaughter's school as well. On the other side of this break, we're going to get into a little conversation about time and space. Uh, Jen Pollock Michelle is an award-winning author of the books Teach Us to Want, Keeping Place, Surprised by a Paradox, and A Habit Called Faith. Uh, she is currently in the Master's of Fine Arts program at Seattle Pacific University. And she's written a new book that takes a look at time. God is eternal, and ultimately we will one day spend eternity with him. We know that those who do not receive the free gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ will spend eternity in eternal torment. But when it comes to how we manage our time right now, we have to understand that time the way we mark it is temporal. And yet, the way we steward it is going to have eternal implications. Jen Pollock Michelle has written a book about stewardship called In Good Time, Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, Jen Pollock Michelle is going to join me to talk about time and timing, and we're going to give away a copy of her book as well. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Today here on The Bottom Line, we're going to talk about something that defines us in many ways, but in other cases, it can actually be a detriment to us, and we're talking about time. Uh, time that uh, we try to manage, whether we try to find it or save it or make the most of it, as all those euphemisms say, uh, that's uh, basically what we are up against each and every day. And at the same time, because we are driven by time, we also kind of have one word that defines how we relate to time, and that's anxiety. And today here on The Bottom Line, we're going to see what we could do to eliminate that, or at least minimize it. Uh, Jen Pollock Michelle is an award-winning author of the book Teach Us to Want, Keeping Place, Surprised by Paradox, and a Habit Called Faith, uh, with an undergraduate degree in French from Wheaton College and a master's in literature from Northwestern. Uh, she's also in the MFA program at Seattle Pacific University right now. Uh, she hosts the Inglewood Review of Books podcast and is the author of a brand new book that we're going to get into here today uh, called In Good Time, uh, Habits for Reimagining Productivity, uh, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. And we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Jen Pollock, Michelle, welcome to The Bottom Line Show today. Thank you, Roger. Thanks for having me. Why does time make us so nervous? 
Because <laughs> there's never enough of it. Uh -huh. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, enough. sand yeah. slipping through our fingers. Mm, I think yeah. time for sure is, you know, the one currency of our lives that we're really not in control of. Right. You know, it's not like you can just work harder and get more time. I mean, maybe you could hire people to delegate some responsibilities to. And of course, there are there are those kinds of ways to get more time. But at the end of the day, we just don't have control over how much time our lives will really amount to. And I think mm -hmm. that's kind of where it all points to is that we're mortal beings and there is an expiration date on our lives. And we live in a culture that for the longest time has operated under the assumption that that wasn't true. We're, we're going to beat the clock. We're going to, we're going to, no one's going to tell us when we're supposed to grow up or go to bed mm. or this, that, and the other thing. And, and now we find ourselves, I mean, we came head first into 2020 and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, people are paying a lot more attention to their mortality or the mm -hmm. mortality of other people. You begin to realize that dash isn't as long as you thought it was in between your birth date and your time ending here. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk about the, What's it like for us in the body of Christ, especially to look at time and say, I didn't realize I had such an unhealthy relationship with it. Yeah. You know, I think on the one hand that as Christians, we know that time is not something to be wasted. You know, it is this context of our lives that for stewardship, you know, to redeem the time, to, right. to believe that time is a gift and something that we offer in faithfulness back to God. Um, but I think we're really, we've been swept up too in a lot of the assumptions, and I would really call them false assumptions of time management, which yeah. is oriented toward control. This idea that if I just employ enough strategies and techniques, I can always get more time, you know, that I could, I can beat the clock. And I think as Christians, um, we have to examine that. We have to sort of ask ourselves, well, how much control do I really have? And actually what is really lost when I operate in a world that is oriented more toward self-reliance than dependence on God. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of faithfulness in time, I think is really what I wanted to get at in the book. I wanted people to think about what does it mean to be faithful with our time? Um, does that always mean hurrying around? Does it always mean producing some, some visible outcome from every hour of our lives? Or could it actually mean embracing habits of rest? Could it mean actually even embracing extravagant faithful, you know, efforts of faithfulness um, or invisible acts of service that don't, that nobody ever notices. So those are some of the things that I'm hoping that people I'll be able to have people think about. I love that. Well, it's a great title. Very provocative. Jen Michelle is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. And the book is called In Good Time. We've got a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com. How did you discover these habits? I mean, I, I don't want to minimize <clears throat> excuse me, the work that you put into this by saying, oh, this is great. Memorize these eight habits and you're like, you know, everything's going to be <laughs> fine. All your anxiety has gone. You know, you don't yeah. have any problems anymore. You and I both know it doesn't work like that. Mm. But for those of us who realize, I mean, we serve an eternal God, you know, God, God's kingdom on uh, on earth is in a temporal world. But as it is in heaven, that's going on, you know, in, mm -hmm. in this whole different continuum time's kind of for our benefit, right? It's kind of like the 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 rails, if you will, <laughs> you know, the, mm -hmm. the lanes of the, the, the mile markers that kind of help us stay the course. How do we kind of lose our dependency on it, but then at the same time develop what you call in your book, on-time faith? Mm -hmm. Well, for me, the learning really did start to come in the pandemic. I think that 
entering into the pandemic, I was, you know, a very committed time manager. I actually yeah. read a lot of time management books and I thought that, you know, there was some sort of secret sauce to exerting, I don't know, control over my time, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then of course, like everybody else, I realized how little control I had entering into the pandemic. And there were just some new learnings through some of the new anxieties of the pandemic. And I would say just some new habits and patterns of living in the pandemic. You know, one of the things, um, so I would actually say that all of the habits in some way actually kind of come out of pandemic learning. Mm, okay. And the first one is even begin um, because, you know, so often there is this kind of false assumption in time management that, you know, everything is yours to decide, even yours mm. to begin. Yeah. And I'm actually pushing on that a little bit. I actually want to think not about our ability and capacity and power to begin, but God's um, and really the control that God has over all of our lives that we aren't deciding everything, but he is. And there's a lot of trust and faith. I mean, you talked about what's the antidote to time anxiety. This is where we begin um, with time faith. We begin with God as the great beginner, the one who is faithful to complete every work that he begins. Mm. Um, and so that's, you know, and we can talk, you know, further about some of the habits, but that is certainly the one that I started with is that, wait, I don't want to accept the time management advice that says, you know, basically, and this is what time, one, a very popular time management time management book in the 1970s, this particular person said, here, here are your three choices. You could drift in time, like be completely aimless, have no goals. You could drown because you're just simply overwhelmed or you can decide. And I really want to say, actually, like just decide to entrust your life um, with the great beginner, the right. one who redeems time and the one, like you said, who exists beyond the bounds of time. Yeah. We don't need alliterative devices here. I mean, don't give us three simple steps that all start with the letter D. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, that's right. we'll come, come, come back to where it really begins, and that's straight to the source. Jen Pollock, Michelle is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. Her book is called In Good Time, Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. And we've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Once we begin, Jen, mm -hmm. now what? Now what? Yeah. <laughs> Where do we yeah. go from there? Yeah. Well, the next habit, and I actually really did struggle with putting this one first. I feel like this the second habit actually is really the first habit, but it's it's about receiving. It's about receiving your life, all of the givens of our lives. I think one of the things that time management does is it emphasizes change. You know, like a life is something, is a problem to be solved, you know, something to be hacked. And, and you... Ultimately, we you want change. And of course, I think in many ways, we all do want change. And I think as Christians, we long for redemption in our lives. And I think that's a really good thing. But I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to receive the givens of our lives. I think that there are ways in which all of us experience limits in our time. In time. Um, maybe that's because we have a physical um, illness or some kind of... Um, Thing that just keeps us maybe moving slower in the world than everybody else. We sort of feel like we're falling behind. You know, maybe it's just the size of our family. I have five children, so I have more limits than, you know, maybe somebody who doesn't yes. have children. Um, right. You know, maybe you have 
a difficult relationship that requires a lot of emotional energy to just keep at that persistent, patient work of loving someone who's difficult, you know, or, or being loved because you're the difficult mm-hmm. person and working yeah. to, you know, um, have God transform you and transform your relationship. So I just think that often we don't think about the givens of our lives and we don't, we really resist the idea of limits and constraints. And I think that can make us really frustrated in time. You know, we set these really ambitious goals for all that we're going to do and achieve. And sometimes that's just not in alignment with actual, (laughs) with our actual lives. And so that's the third habit. I mean, that's the second habit receive. Okay, well, we've gotten through two. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll do a kind of a jet tour of some of the main ones. But the best way, of course, to dive in and really uh, let this uh, wash over your heart and your soul and your mind is to pick up a copy of Jen Pollock Michelle's book called In Good Time, Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of this conversation in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Don't believe your insurance company is looking out for you. They're not. They want you to call them after you're in an accident, but you shouldn't handle that alone. That's where Stephanie Cover of Cover Law shines. With 20 years of insurance industry experience, she knows all the angles and will fight for your rights. Insurance companies pretend to be your partner, but in reality, their primary goal is to pay you as little as possible. When you work with Cover Law, Stephanie becomes your negotiator, and the insurance companies must talk to her, not you. You need to rest and heal. Stephanie is different from other attorneys. She's fully invested in your legal, medical, financial, emotional, and spiritual needs. After an accident, you don't want to deal with insurance adjusters who want to minimize your payout. So don't wait. Contact Cape Wright's personal injury attorney today at capewrightradio.com slash coverlaw. You won't pay a dime to talk to someone who truly cares about your healing. Jen Pollock, Michelle is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. She's the author of a brand new book that you will find extremely beneficial, regardless of what season in life you are, regardless of what you do for a living, or if you're in ministry or in business or whatever. Time management is essential if we're going to be good stewards with the lives that God has given us. But to do so in a way that really honors God, as opposed to you know the Carnegie Foundation or something else like that, she's <laughs> written a book called In Good Time. Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, during the break, Jen and I were talking about the uh, uh, the different uh, habits that there are. Of course, there are eight of them. And one that really uh, jumped out at me, and I'll, I'll say this as somebody who is kind of like the type A, let's plan and schedule and make everybody else okay with what we're doing here. I don't really enjoy a lot of things in life. My mm. kids asked me one time, what do you do for a hobby? I said, I don't. I mean, literally, <laughs> I, I, I have a great job that I love. I love to talk to people and you know broadcast. I've been doing it for 40 years. So I kind of it's kind of a paid vacation for me. But when you talk about you know living in God's good timing, that habit of practicing enjoyment, Jen, what does that mm-hmm. look like? What does that look like for someone like me? 
Yeah. Well, I'm kind of can I have the same disease okay. that you have. <laughs> we went to the <laughs> same school. Yeah. Okay. We kind of did. It's interesting. I'm actually working on an assignment now on leisure, play, fun in the Christian life. And I just even having already written this book and the whole um idea of the enjoy chapters that were called into God's joy. Mm-hmm. Um, not just this 24-7 kind of relentless, constant work, which I think so many of us experience and feel so necessary. But even though I know that, I mean, I think I've even been challenged in this most recent assignment to think, you know, how much do I practice leisure and fun? I have a habit of Sabbath practice. I mean, that's sort of been established for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, which has been really great. But I mean, even beyond that, even beyond just rest, which I think all of us kind of know that feels pretty human, that feels pretty important and necessary. But what about like fun? What about, you know, pure enjoyment? I think if you follow the thread of the gospel throughout the scriptures, you see it's always leading to joy. There's so many promises to the nation of Israel that, you know, they're not going to just experience joy in a kind of spiritual sense. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're going to have some, I don't know, like esoteric experience and just feel peace. Like, no, actually, God was like, I'm going to give you grain and wine and oil and your families are going to be big. And there were, of course, all these celebrations that were planned in the calendar of ancient Jewish worship. So if we think in Enjoyment isn't important. Like we need to kind of look back at that sort of pattern of feasting in the life of the Jews. Mm. I think that's really instructive to us. And of course, that was transferred in early Christianity, but a lot of traditions have sort of lost that regular patterning of feasting and also fasting. Mm-hmm. But it's not just fasting. Right. And and so I think even to look at how Jesus is talking to the disciples the night that he's betrayed, and we're actually recording this in Holy Week, and Jesus says, you know, follow me into my fullness of joy. And of course, there's something incredibly paradoxical about that. Like he's right. going to the cross. How can this be for his joy? And so on the one hand, we're always grappling with the, the fact that the Christian version of joy is not the world's version of joy. Amen. But it isn't just, you know, like complete platitude either. You know, I think there really is a sense that God it's joy for us. And we know that eternal joy is actually going to be the earth remade, remade, you know? And so one of the cool areas of research that I sort of dug into for the book is the idea that when you're experiencing joy, and so let's also just put those other words in there, leisure, amusement, fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's actually when time slows down the most. Yeah. And I think that's something super important. You know, why do we feel constantly frantic and hurried? Well, when you have, when all you're thinking about is your to-do list and how to get it all done, then of course you're going to feel that way. But joy isn't something you have to get done. You just kind of inhabit it. You enter it. And that's when time slows down. And so if we want to sort of practice our way out of time anxiety, enjoyment is a beautiful way to do it. You know, I'm talking with Jen Pollock, Michelle, today here on The Bottom Line. Her book is called In Good Time, Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. And we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And as I read your subtitle, uh, Jen, I, I'm reminded of the fact that reimagining productivity, resisting hurry, and practicing peace are three 
perfect descriptions of how Jesus lived when he was on the earth. Mm. I, mean, the fact that, I mean, the fact that everything was fruitful in his ministry, he did practice peace and he practiced rest. And he was always busy. Like he, we've got a my wife and I have a granddaughter. She's two. And she's always walking around. And one day Lisa said, she's walking like she's got somewhere to be. You know, like she's, got, like she's got a meeting or something, you know, just two years yes. old. But I realized that, you know, in Jesus' ministry, one of the hallmarks of that is the fact that he was always busy, but he was never in a hurry. And mm -hmm. when we, as as his children, you know, the body of Christ, are demonstrating this kind of pained, stressed out, coffee-fueled, I mean, if you drink coffee, I don't, don't mean that. I right. definitely drink coffee, okay, so good. yes. Okay, well, good. My, my daughter, who, my son-in-law and daughter are actually brewing their own now. They're they're making their own beans. I mean, they're they're so into it. <laughs> but, but the but the idea that you don't have to be supercharged by the world or all these other things to get everything done, you can resist hurry and still be productive and still be in God's good graces in terms of operating time management the way he wants it to. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that you use the word fruitful. You were talking about the fruitfulness of Jesus life and ministry. And, and, you know, that's of course the, we were talking about Jesus final words to his disciples. And one mm -hmm. of that in that long kind of protracted speech or that's recorded in the gospel of John, he talks about, I'm the vine, you're the branches, you know, and I, my desire is for you to bear much fruit because if you bear fruit, that will be to my glory. And I think that when I, that in that subtitle, reimagining productivity, that's the mm -hmm. word I actually want to exchange for productivity. Yes. I want to say, let's not look to live productive lives. Let's look to live fruitful lives. And one of the things we know about fruit fullness is that there's a seasonality to it. Yes. And so it means that, you know, there will be rhythms, there will actually be seasons of winter in our lives where it looks like we're probably mm -hmm. not producing anything, but mm -hmm. what's happening in wintering seasons, your roots, roots are growing deep. And so that's what I'm, I'd love for people to think, to embrace the term of fruitfulness, to think way about the ways that that helps them reimagine their relationship to time. Jen Pollock Michelle is with me today here on the bottom line. In Good Time is the name of the brand new book that she's just released. It's up at thebottomlineshow.com. Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. We've got about a minute and a half left in our time together, Jen. I would love for you to zero in on the one word. When I looked at the eight habits, when I saw the list on the uh, table of contents of the book before I even cracked it open and started reading it, the word that jumped out at me is habit number three belong. And the reason it did is because of the fact that I remember being that shy kid growing up or that kind of awkward adult who has a strange job that nobody else understands or, you know, whatever it is. And that sense of belonging is so it's at the heartbeat of a lot of our anxiety when you get right down to it. Talk about mm -hmm. how how do we have an on time faith and experience the practice of the habit of belonging when mm -hmm. we don't always feel like we do. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I think it's really interesting for as much as we want belonging, hope for belonging, a lot of times we're afraid of it too. You know, we are afraid of belonging. And I think we're afraid of the, not just the risks of belonging, but the costs of belonging. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I think I realized in the pandemic was just how much I missed connection yes. with other people. While I think I would have said earlier, like, I can't allow myself, you 
you know, to plan a coffee in the middle of the week. I've got a work, I've got work to do. Um, and so often I think my life, you know, in this attempt to be so productive, it actually was crowding out people and relationships. And then to not have those people and relationships is what I real I started to realize this is actually the good that God has for his people. And all of the things, the images and metaphors that we see in scripture, that we're part of a household, we're part of a family, we're part mm -hmm. of a temple, we're part of, um, we're branches in the vine. Um, this means that we are meant to belong to each other. And belonging mm -hmm. is costly. It'll cost you time to love people, yep. but it will enrich our lives. Mm, and you can't beat that. Um, what a great resource and what a delightful conversation, too. I highly recommend the brand new book by Jen Pollock, Michelle. It's called In Good Time, Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. It will have a positive impact on your life in ways that no other resources will. And I'm glad that we had this time together. Jen Pollock, Michelle, great to get to know you. And thank you for being with us today here on The Bottom Line Show. Thank you so much, Roger. Well, every time I see this title, I think of the, you know, that movie, All in Good Time. But uh, I'm grateful that Jen Pollock Michelle has given us a, a piece that we can use to, uh, when you get right down to it, uh, take a look at time in the way the author of time, the one who is eternal and good and true, sees it and wants us to see it as well. Jen Pollock Michelle, the book is called In Good Time Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we do have a copy of the book to give away as well. 800 227 5278. 800 227 5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Remember, when you're calling in also, uh, if you'd like a copy of, like, if you have interest in speaking of redeeming time, uh, how about redeeming your retirement time? Uh, Dennis Wilson has screeners available of the baby boom dilemma, the baby boomer dilemma, and uh, the expose of the retirement system as well. We got a couple of those around as well. So if you don't win Jen's book, you can ask about Dennis's movie. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line on the other side of this break i want to take a look at the time eternity conundrum the paradox if you will and how we as christians can do a better job of resolving that conflict that's all coming up next as the bottom line continues you know the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, if you're an expectant mom and you go to a pregnancy health center that is in partnership with Preborn, one picture can say way more than that. And that picture I'm talking about is an ultrasound picture. Every donation that goes to Preborn goes to providing ultrasounds for women who are expecting children and they want to know what all of their options are. When you call 833-850-BABY right now, you give a gift of $28 that provides one ultrasound. But if you give a gift toward the purchase of an ultrasound machine, now that's a $50 $15,000 investment, but every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts a minimum of 10 years. That's 2,500 ultrasounds available to women right now. Think of all the babies, thousands of babies' lives that will be saved by your donation to preborn right now. Call 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Make your best donation right now. $50, $100. Maybe you want to give $15,000. It's completely tax deductible. We've had a couple of bottom line listeners step up and do just that. 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn right now. 
My thanks again to author Jen Pollock Michelle for joining me today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called In Good Time, Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we're giving away a copy of the book right now, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. I have talked to, counseled with, prayed with, laughed with, cried with so many people who have a hard time with this issue. And I do too. I'm an introvert. I can focus on one thing at a time, really. And if something comes and knocks me off my course, it's tough for me to get back in the groove. And then all of a sudden, I'm constantly trying to work ahead and get ahead. And my wife is always quick to point out that every time I try to spend a little extra time working ahead because of the nature of what I do for a living, hosting a daily talk show, um, I never fully get ahead because there's always next week's show and the week after that and the month after that. But you know, it's interesting. I think if you were to ask people with regard to the issue of time, what is the one word that they can use to describe your relationship with the clock? They would say it's anxiety. <laughs> I know sometimes you could be really productive if you've got kind of that proverbial, you know, back to the wall. But can you imagine your life without relentless work and hurry and multitasking and scarcity and that type of stuff? How else are you going to spend eternity with God? Presence, attention, you know, rootedness, generosity, fruitfulness. That's how we're called to live. The world says be busy, multitask, do as much as you possibly can all the time. We want to get as much out of you, get as much out of whatever you can. But the way of the Spirit, the rhythm of the Spirit is to be present. Jesus said, John 15, if you want to obey me, you will abide in me. You'll do what I ask you to do. Eyes on me, Jesus said, when Peter was walking on water. We've got to have, uh, he's got to have our attention and we need to keep our attention on him. You want to be fruitful? There are times when you look at the garden that you have planted or the orchard or the vineyard and you realize that the seed is planted Watering is taking place and all that really is going to happen for the next several weeks or months is it's going to grow and eventually become fruitful. But that takes being rooted in the soil of God's word and of his love for you and for me. Um, the good time that we spend is not just because it's happy, but because it's fruitful and beneficial in God's economy. That is good news. And that's the bottom line. For our KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your day. And Rabbi Schneider with Discovering the Jewish Jesus coming up next. For those who remain on the network, are you a pastor? Are you looking for a pastor? Are you a former pastor who wants to help a younger pastor, especially in his or her early years of ministry? Phil Newton and Rich Shadden have a mentor-mentee relationship, and they've written a book about it called Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Phil and Rich join me next as The Bottom Line continues. Well, today on The Bottom Line, we're going to take a look at an issue that is becoming more and more challenging for churches, for members of the ministry, uh, for congregants as well, and that is what happens when you have a pastor come to your church, and this is his or her first opportunity to actually lead, to actually be in those, you know, those kind of early years of ministry, the formative years, where people kind of expect you to make a few mistakes, but more and more, there's less grace for that. Uh, there's a brand new resource out put together by a 
a team of pastors, one who is uh, about 10 plus years into his ministry and the other one who served in pulpit ministry for over 40 years. And they've teamed up to put together a brand new resource that's literally called Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry. We have a link for the book up at the bottom line show.com. Rich Shadden has served as a pastor for over 10 years and continues pastoring and training pastors through the local church pastoral residency at Audubon Park Baptist Church in Tennessee. Phil A. Newton served as pastor for over 40 years and continues to mentor and train pastors through the Pillar Network as Director of Pastoral Care and Mentoring and Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he serves as an adjunct professor. You guys have really long business cards with all those titles, but let me just say, welcome to the Bottom Line Show, Rich Shadden and Phil Newton. It's good to have you on the program today. It is a joy to be with you guys. It sure is. We appreciate the opportunity. Well, Rich, I'll start with you because you, you're kind of newer in the game, and then we'll get some seasoned veteran advice from Phil as well. But uh, talk about why this resource was so important for you to be a part of. Well, because of my own personal experience, I just personally benefited from having Phil Newton uh, as a mentor of mine. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, in fact, looking back, coming to Audubon Park, where I, I'm serving as pastor. I could not imagine those early years without having Phil as a mentor regularly speaking into my life. Mm -hmm. And so I just saw and continue to see the benefit of of having that older, wiser pastor speak into my life, which really is a friendship. And that's the beauty of it, is Mm -hmm. that we have certainly become friends over the years and felt the need to put this out there so that others could hopefully benefit from it and receive some pastoral mentorship themselves. Phil, uh, Rich just had some really nice things to say about you, but you don't have to be quite so kind and polite if you don't want to. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but but talk about what the relationship has been like from you. How did you and Rich come into this mentor-mentee relationship in pastoral ministry? Well, that's a good question. And, and I think one that maybe would be helpful for some pastors who are listening. Uh, Rich and his wife, Christy, attended our church and I found out that he was uh, being going through seminary training and had a heart to go into pastoral ministry. So uh, I had an active pastoral internship. It's what we called it at the time, pastoral mentoring, uh, where I would meet with guys on a regular basis. We'd read books together. I'd give them assignments. We'd talk about sermons. Um, they would preach. I would critique them different kind of things like that. And so I asked Rich if he would like to be part of that internship, and he gladly agreed to do that. And out of that, what I found is, yeah, I'm I'm teaching some things. Yes, we're reading books. Yes, we're talking about ministry. But we're really building deep, deep friendships. And I, mm. I remember reading, and I, I think I had this in the Shepherding the Pastor book, but I remember reading that there was a guy who was being mentored by Ulrich Zwingli back in the uh, 16th century. And he, he was talking about Zwingli, saying nice things about him, but he said, he's my friend. And uh, and I, I look at Rich as a dear friend and one that I can share my heart with. Uh, he ministers to me. I, it, it's not a one-way street. It is uh, definitely a two-way street. He ministers to me. He encourages me. We pray for each other. 
And I'm um, I'm thankful for that kind of relationship at this, especially at this stage of life. Hmm. Rich, uh, Rich Shadden and Phil Newton are my guests today here on The Bottom Line, and we're talking about a brand new resource that's getting really good reviews and very high marks. It's called Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. There's kind of that honeymoon period, isn't there? You know, when you first start out and the new pastor comes in and everybody's all excited, you know, to have a, a new pastor, or in some cases just relieved that somebody actually did take on this position. Uh, Rich, talk about what it was like to go through the beginning years of pastoral ministry, knowing that you had Phil mentoring you, kind of not, not necessarily in your ear, but uh, just walking the road alongside you as you kind of went through the ups and downs of those first few years. Yeah, and you mentioned the honeymoon period. I think that's true. And I think everybody's honeymoon period, you know, is different in length. And mine lasted for about nine months. I was walking mm-hmm. through the book of Philippians, just preaching expositionally through Philippians. And, um, and, and Phil even gave me, gave me counsel on what book to preach. I remember mm-hmm. talking to him about that. In Philippians, there's, there's no major controversy there. And so it was just a book about joy and humility in the Lord and Christ. And so after nine months, we had to face some facts as a church about our situation, and that's when it became really challenging, or it started to become challenging. Right. And so just having the opportunity to give Phil a call, grab some lunch with him, or a cup of coffee, whatever that may be, and say, hey, I I don't know how to approach this situation. You know, the thing about seminary, and I believe theological training is extremely important, um, but it just doesn't teach you about the various challenges you'll face. You only mm-hmm. learn about those when you face them. Right. But if you have someone who's already gone through those and can say, hey, here's how to apply biblical wisdom in this situation, it just creates an opportunity for you to avoid uh, implosion. And so mm-hmm. Phil, Phil has been that voice for me, particularly in those early years. And I just, again, I'm so thankful. Yeah, it sounds like a real benefit. Uh, Phil Newton and Rich Shadden are my guests today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry, and we have a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com. If you are new to ministry, and this doesn't necessarily mean you're young, because so many pastors are making that decision kind of mid-career, people in their 40s and 50s, you know, moving into it. And sometimes when we get a little older and crunchier, it's tough to take on a role like this and have to deal with these types of things. So this is a good resource to have. Uh, You know, it's interesting, the way you lay the book, out, Phil, the the idea that, you know, you have to understand, you know, there's a calling and you're sent into pastoral ministry and you have those beginning years. Before you have the part of the ministry that gets to the fruitful part, you just kind of take it as a given that there's going to be a certain level of tumultuousness that happens here too. Talk about, you know, how that becomes more of an, uh, it's not a question of if, it's a matter of when, when that happens. Right, right. It, It would be very odd to go to a church. And I don't want to say it never happens uh, because someone may follow a pastor that has just done an incredible job and the church has responded superbly and he walks in and there it is and and uh, and he, he's able to do well. Except generally he's going to understand some of his own weaknesses that he didn't realize were there. They get exposed mm-hmm. by pastoring and there'll be some inherent weaknesses in the church, even though everything looked really good. The, the reality, and I've, I've seen this, I pastored four churches. One, the last one I planted, the, the other three were definitely 
revitalization situations. And I would say all of my friends that I've known through the years in pastoral ministry, and there have been a lot of them, have gone through difficulties because you are you're going to make some mistakes in how you pastor. You're going to speak when you need to be silent. You're going to speak in tones maybe that you shouldn't. Uh, you're going to miss that visit that you should have made in the hospital. You got busy and you just forgot about it and some feelings hurt. Uh, you're going to see some things, whether it's in the, the liturgy, whether it's the music, whether it's the teaching ministry, whether it's the student and children's work in the church, whether it's what they do in missions, you're going to see some things that you realize, you know, this doesn't really have a good gospel ring about it, and I need to move toward changing it. And anytime you do that, you put yourself in a position where there are going to be some difficulties, and there is liable to be some opposition, and you certainly will face things that you're not exactly sure what to do, mm-hmm. but you know something has got to be done. And, and that's one of the reasons it really is helpful to have a, uh, a mentor or mentors along to give you some counsel and, and help you through it. It's just, it's just a reality. And I'm, I, I think there were two or three times with Rich, I know I've done this with other guys, they would be pouring their heart out about some difficulty. And I would say, welcome to the ministry. <laughs> and I was yep. trying to be catty. Yeah. It's, just, it's just the reality of it. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the expression that comes to mind is shake hands with the rest of us. Uh, Phil Newton, Rich Shadden, <laughs> my guest today here on The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Their brand new book is called Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry. We have a link for this book up at thebottomlineshow.com. If you are new in ministry, if there's a member of your family, maybe who's just graduating from seminary this spring and getting ready to go on that first call, or maybe you're on that search committee, you're looking to bring on a pastor. Our church did this a number of years ago. We got a guy right out of seminary. He came on board from Minnesota and jumped right into Southern California, uh, right in the middle of a pandemic. What could possibly go wrong? I wish we had this resource to give to him as well. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We'll talk about those fruitful years of ministry and what makes pastors stay or leave the calling. We'll talk about that coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. 
Fabulous conversation today here on The Bottom Line. Phil A. Newton and Rich Shadden are my guests. They are co-authors, mentor and mentee uh, in ministry. They've got a brand new book out called Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And uh, we were talking about the tumultuous years uh, before the break here. And Rich, I I wanted to ask you, there's a point where I think just about every pastor, or maybe there are several points Mm -hmm. along the way early in ministry, where you really question the call and say, oh my goodness, is it the church? Is it the calling? Is it me? What is it? What was that point like? Notice I'm not going to ask if that happened to you. What was that point like for you, Rich Shadden? Because you've been at it 10 years now, and we're grateful that you're still in pastoral ministry. But when you hit that wall and sat down with family and friends and said, boy, did I hear God correctly? What was that like? Yeah, I remember it vividly. It was around the fourth, fifth year. Things began to really become rocky. And I came to a point where I wondered if I was useful, if I was able to help the church, if God was pleased to keep me here. And I began to question, is it time to go? And I remember this, we were going through a really tumultuous time. Um, the church was very divided, and there's a lot of backstory to that, but it was very divided. And the only thing I could see is that I caused it. <laughs> at least that mm. was the, the mindset I had at the time. But I think in God's kindness, I can look back and say that um, the Word was faithfully taught. Yeah, I tried to shepherd as best as I could. Um, but we we just had some deep underlying problems that were starting to come to the surface. So fast forward, I remember pondering that question, is it time to go? How do you know when it's time to go? So I called Phil, we talked, and he pointed me to John chapter 10. And this was just such a turning point and gave me a deep resolve to know that I could not leave at that time. And he pointed me to um, the testimony about Jesus. And he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I remember that hitting me in such a profound way that now that text is about Jesus. It's not about pastors, but he's the chief shepherd and we're under shepherds and he's the model for all of his shepherds. And Phil, this is important because this is why having a mentor matters. Phil knows me and knew me. He knew my family. If my family had been in shambles, he probably would have counseled me differently. But in God's grace and kindness, my family, my marriage, we're in a good spot at that time. And um, he said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I just knew I couldn't leave, that there were saints there who needed to continue to be fed the Word of God and ministered to, and that just gave me a deep resolve, and this concept of leaving, at least at that moment, was gone. And so that was, I look back at that and and just see the hand of the Lord working through Phil and um, helping me to endure those tumultuous years so that by God's grace and kindness, we could begin to see the fruitful years to follow. 
I love that. Rich Shadden is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, along with his mentor, Pastor Phil Newton. They are the co-authors of a brand new book called Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Guys, I'll put this question out to both of you. It really does, when you want to experience those fruitful years in ministry, uh, something that I think has been lost in pastoral ministry, and it's a shame, is there's a culture of entertainment, there isn't a culture of discipleship, you know? go into all the world and make disciples. I mean, that's kind of the Roger paraphrase of Matthew and Mark, you know, talking about what Jesus said in the in the Great Commission. Discipleship really is key. And I think it, sometimes some pastors, it takes a long time to figure that out. To either you, Phil or Rich, talk about why that is so such an important foundational point for pastors in succeeding in ministry, if you will. Yeah, you've got to be a disciple if you're going to be a Christian. Uh, Christians are disciples, disciples are Christians, that is, those who are in Christ. And so I think I think one of the problems that we've had over the, and I, I would say this, having, having come to faith in Christ during the Jesus movement and then watching development, there, there's often been a demarcation between doing evangelism, so introducing someone to the gospel, and doing discipleship as though discipleship is uh, a second second tier, second level, something mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you may or may not do. But I I think that is a mistaken understanding of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, and certainly in the epistles as as well with the uh, with the disciples. Um, so we we have to approach the Christian life as a life of being disciples and disciples or I mean the the word mathetes disciple means a learner. So we're learners. We're following Jesus. And maybe the simplest way of putting it, a disciple is someone who, who follows Jesus Christ and follows him with genuineness and seriousness. And so as a pastor, I must first be a Christian. I must first be a disciple. I must first be following after Christ. And then in my relationship with other pastors, and even those I'm, I'm uh, or particularly those I'm mentoring, all I'm doing, I'm, I'm just exercising the discipling relationship with them. I'm, I'm helping them to follow Jesus, even as I'm learning more and more what it is to follow after Jesus. And, and that is all encompassing. And I, um, and I, and I say this as, you know, someone who came to faith in Christ in 1969, it's still, it, it's even more encompassing to me now uh, mm-hmm. that that we are disciples. So we're serious-minded. We're, we're not just making professions that we're Christians. We're following after Christ. And that's what we're trying to do in these pastoral relationships, that we are following after Christ together, and we're shepherding those that we're discipling. That's really what's happening in shepherding. We're discipling. We are training. We're helping those sheep follow after Christ. I think that's great counsel from Phil Newton today here on The Bottom Line. He and Rich Shadden are the co-authors of the brand new book called Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Rich, I'll I'll point the last question in your direction because we've talked an awful lot about uh, young guys and how important it is, and young gals for that matter too, who are going into ministry and having that mentor-mentee relationship would you make your appeal to those of us who maybe have a little more dust on the bottle or dust on the Bible or whatever you want to call it in terms of we've been doing this for a while, we got more gray hairs than we really want. 
And there becomes a point where those of us in our 60s and maybe even their 70s might begin to think, well, gosh, maybe it's time for me to get out of the way and let the younger pastors come on board. Talk about why it's so important for us in that season to not neglect the call to mentoring, to look for someone younger that we can kind of come alongside and help out. Because I think our usefulness in ministry only gets better with time and age. Mm. Um, how much more do you know as you're older than you did when you were younger? And it may look differently how that works itself out, but most, if not all, young men that begin ministry are probably very zealous, probably have a lot of biblical knowledge because they just came out of seminary. They've been studying theology. They have a lot of zeal, but they don't know how to channel that. Well, how valuable is it, not only for that young pastor, but for the the, the church and for God's people and for the kingdom for older, wiser, seasoned pastors to take young men under their wings and say, hey, let me help channel that and let me help you think through how to apply biblical knowledge with what you don't have, which is probably wisdom. And so I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to me, that is just incredibly valuable. So I make the appeal to older men, please take the initiative and just invite younger men out to lunch, younger pastors out to lunch, get to know them. And if it sticks, praise God. If it doesn't, ask another one and just mm-hmm. keep keep trying to pour yourself out because you have so much to offer, uh, much more than we do, that's for sure. You know, it's, it really makes so much sense, and especially in this day and age when a lot of younger folks are of the mindset that it's time for the older uh, to get out of the way and uh, let the younger ones have their turn. It's nice to hear a younger man like you, Rich Shadden, uh, say, hey, look, if it weren't for Phil uh, Newton and the mentoring relationship that I had, I don't know what my ministry would be like. And you can see the fruits of your labor in this brand new book called Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Phil A. Newton, Rich Shadden, thank you for sharing your relationship with us and also with others who will benefit from the way you had the mentor-mentee thing going on in pastoral ministry. Appreciate your time today here on The Bottom Line Show. Thanks a lot, Roger. It's been a joy to be with you. It sure has. We appreciate it. Great conversation. It sounds like a wonderful relationship, too. Pastor Phil Newton and Pastor Rich Shadden have been my guests today here on The Bottom Line. Their new book is called Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And we have a copy of the book to give away. And if you are on the call committee at your church to bring in a new pastor, if you are someone who is considering uh, getting into pastoral ministry, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, in your collegiate years, or maybe you're in your middle years and still got a lot of game left to play, but you're thinking about a mid-career change, this is a good resource to have. And if you are someone who could be mentoring a pastor right now, I encourage you to get a copy of this book. We do have it linked at thebottomlineshow.com, and we do have a copy for giveaway as well. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. 
You know, I'll never forget the moment I met my grandson, Isaac. It actually wasn't in the delivery room. That was the first time I held him. But the first time I actually met Isaac was when I went with his mother to her ultrasound appointment, and the ultrasound technician showed us a picture of that eight-week-old baby in the womb. Uh, you know, I encourage you to contact Preborn right now and make a donation to provide that same experience for another family. Maybe there's someone in your family who's expecting a child right now. They've had the ultrasound. You've seen the picture. You've heard the heartbeat, and you think, wow, how can I bless someone else? Studies show that 83% of the women who go to a preborn clinic and see that ultrasound either choose to become mothers and raise the children on their own or release the child for adoption. It cuts the risk of, it cuts the rate of abortion dramatically. But your donations are necessary right now to get more ultrasound machines into preborn health clinics. Give a gift online when you go to kbrightradio.com and click the banner that says preborn. Cute little baby there wrapped up in a blanket. Or give a gift over the phone. 833-850-BABY, 833-850-BABY, that's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn, make a donation. Every ultrasound machine could do 250 ultrasounds per year, so give a gift right now. My thanks again to pastors Phil Newton and Rich Shadden for joining me today here on The Bottom Line. The past half hour, we've been talking about shepherding the pastor, help for the early years of ministry, and boy, I'll tell you what, uh, having gone through this in midlife, having known people who've done it in their 20s and 30s, those first few years, that first pastoral assignment can be very brutal. And if you've got a new pastor, especially, I know the last church I was part of, Lutheran Church of the Cross, um, one of the final things I did was to work on a steering committee that brought in a 27-year-old seminary grad uh, basically to take my old spot. And uh, it was I, I wish we had this resource for him. As a matter of fact, I may get it and send it to him anyway because I think he'll benefit from it. We do have a copy that we're giving away of the book Shepherding the Pastor, Help for the Early Years of Ministry. Love to give it to you, 800-227-5278 great gift for someone you know, maybe at your church who's thinking about a call to ministry, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. This issue is so important because more people are leaving pastoral ministry than ever before. They're either at the age of retirement, maybe they're burned out, maybe they're frustrated, and we don't see a lot of pastors stepping into the role in pastoral ministry. I have a feeling that the bi or co-vocational pastor is going to become the norm in the years to come, maybe even happening right now. So what does that mean for us in our congregations? What are we going to do to help them, to support them? At the end of the day, as the Lord's return draws closer and closer, as we see the world falling further and further away in sin, but we should also be expected to see the people who really are growing in faith, growing and flourishing in faith. What are we doing to support our pastors? Trust me, it's a lonely position and it's no fun to hear people who say, I got out of ministry because after 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, I didn't have any connection with anybody. I didn't really know anyone. I mean, I used to love being part of a congregation where when the pastor retired, they stayed at our church and they were still around serving. At one point when I first started at my former church, we our senior pastor had five former pastors that were still at the church serving and helping. I thought, what a blessing, not only to the pastors, but to the congregation as well. Just because you're not getting a full-time check in pastoral ministry anymore doesn't mean you don't have game to play. And mentoring in these crazy times we're in is so valuable. If you are of the mentoring season, please find a younger pastor to mentor or maybe to call into ministry. Maybe you're the eyes and ears of Jesus who's going to make that happen. 
but the pastor needs to be shepherd just as shepherded just as the congregation does because ultimately the good shepherd is the one who knows his sheep and the sheep know his voice that is good news and that's the bottom line